So we're continuing our study in Revelation. Back to the to the big picture. We're working on this little section down there circled in the bottom on the visions of the defeated. And a couple things that get covered in the course of that, but mostly it's two chapters, 17 and 18. <clears throat> Last week, we got into the uh, most of chapter 17, but because uh, there's so much that relates to these, and I'm going to do a little bit of a review on that or a little recap on it, uh, particularly introduced to us three important characters, uh, a woman, a beast, we've already seen the beast, and some kings. And their relationship between these are very important to what we see as we go forward in chapter 17 and 18. So just to kind of go back and think about what we learned so far, the kings. The kings symbolize political and military power uh, in whatever form it takes throughout uh, history. There are seven kings that were talked about, which symbolize a completion, a full number. They represent the complete number of political powers existing throughout history since the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The angel tells John that five have fallen. So that's your indefinite number of the past. Well, there always is one going on right now. So one is, that's the present, ruling powers. And then John was told that there is one other that is yet to come. And this is the future manifestation of whatever form it takes of this sort of governmental power, military power on the earth. At any point in church history with this kind of a nebulous statement uh, that we find here uh, we can say that the end is near but we're not quite there and that's where we are this one king that will come at the end it says told us that he will remain only a little while so whatever happens then it will remain just a little while because it gets displaced or disrupted by the next character which was the beast now, we've seen the beast before in chapter 13 and uh, 16. So that's not completely foreign to us, described as having seven heads and seven horns and blasphemous names written on it. That's kind of a combination of things we've seen so far. John was told the heads of the beast were also seven kings. So, okay, there we get our seven kings showing up. This implied the beast would inject an element of uh, influence of some kind over those political powers. Uh, in the future, the beast will intrude himself into this set of rulers. And because it, it talks about that he becomes an eighth, but he belongs to the seven. So it looks like just a normal procession of changes in, in government and power in the world. But it's going to change how things begin to happen. We find out when that happens that the ten horns that the beast had morph into kings. Lots of morphing into kings here. Uh, and form an alliance with the beast, representing the full political and military power of Earth, and that lasts for one hour. Okay, so that's important to keep that in mind. So that brings us to the woman. And she really is the topic of chapters 17 and 18. The woman was identified as the great prostitute, as Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes, and of the Earth's abominations. How would you like to have that on a business card? You know, anyway, 
Consistent with the language of the Old Testament prophets, when we see things like sexual morality and infidelity, uh, they're metaphors. They're metaphors for spiritual idolatry. So that's what we're talking about here. Uh, the Apostle Paul summarized this kind of idolatry in, in Romans. He says they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. The most striking part of the description of the woman that we saw at the beginning of uh, chapter 17 was it was not what we expected for a common prostitute. It says she was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. And that's a picture of nobility and wealth and elite culture in the first century. In the Greco-Roman world. She was clearly connected to the beast, held some kind of authority or dominion over the beast, which is pictured in the idea that she's seated on that beast. And also over the kings, because we find out that the seven kings are also seven mountains, which are the seven heads, and the woman is sitting on them as well. <clears throat> John reacted to these images with the words, I saw her and I marveled greatly. Now, there's, I mentioned there's lots of speculation exactly what's going on there, but I think part of what John's response was, was he grasped the danger that this woman posed. This was someone who was, was a corrupting influence on the dwellers of the earth, including the political power, even though she's separate from that, that's symbolized by the kings, but, the, but a serious threat to the church, because she's also described as being drunk with the blood of the saints and with the martyrs of Jesus. Now, this important contrast between the beast and the woman carries forward. Um, the beast was typified or represented this political power, religious power. In fact, in chapter 13, we see that, that even the, the required worship, and it was imposed by force, is brutal. Um, by contrast, a woman is an image of something more subtle and seductive that we will learn is based on the economic and the cultural power that she wields as opposed to the political and religious. Now, I would even go so far as to say that John may have connected this woman, and remember I mentioned last week that when the early church people first heard this or read this, they did it in one sitting. So it takes about an hour and ten minutes, so this wouldn't be that far back. Uh, but I think that John may have connected this with a central point in the message to the churches where we have that center point, the church at Thyatira, dangerously compromised because of that woman Jezebel. And there's going to be some other connections to Jezebel as we get into this. The final vision that we covered last week, John saw the beast and this coalition of these ten kings form a short-lived alliance to make war on the Lamb. Of course, that did not turn out any differently than the parallel picture, similar picture we see that back in chapter 16, of doing battle against the Lord Almighty at uh, Armageddon. The Lamb easily conquered them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. In the last passage, chapter 17, the angel 
completed his explanation of these mysteries of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and seven horns by returning to the image of this woman who is seated on many waters. So that's our first passage for this morning. The angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, uh, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. This is uh, the last time we see there's lots of, we're getting to the end of Revelation, so this is going to be some last time for a number of things. We see these patterns. There were seven times now we've seen in Revelation this fourfold description of groups of humanity. The first two that we saw were back in chapter 5 and chapter 7, and they actually described the redeemed, the people of God. Now, in chapter 10, if you recall, that's been a few weeks ago now, uh, that the John was recommissioned to prophesy to many peoples and nations and languages and kings, and that message that he was going to bring was one primarily of judgment. So beginning with chapter 10 and going forward, every time you see one of these references, it has to do with those who are rebellion against God. Now, if there's, is there significance between the two and the five split? Other than the fact there's seven total, uh, that's about the only thing anyone agrees on, that it's the fullness of this, the completeness of this. But there's also a possibility that maybe the two at the beginning uh, referred to the two witnesses in chapter 11, which also were a picture of the church. So let's get back to our other, other text here so you can see it. Now we find out what the alliance of that beast and ten kings did for that one hour they were given back in chapter 17. Their alliance was initially formed around hate. Isn't that a great thing to form around? You should keep that in mind as you start thinking and hearing things in our culture right now. Um, But this is what they did. They formed around hate for the prostitute. Hate for the woman. It's a strong Greek word, meseo. That means, you know, not only just dislike strongly, but it has the implication of aversion and hostility attached to it. It's the root of some of the compound English words we get from uh, the Greek language, like misogynist, woman-hater, misanthrope, man-hater. Those are the same idea. It was used four times in Revelation. Two of them we saw back in chapter 2 in in one of the messages to the church at Ephesus where they are commended for you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, Jesus told them. So we got some strong words there. The next two of these, though, are here and in the first part of chapter 18 that we'll look at this morning. This intense hate for the great prostitute resulted in this alliance and the beast. They turned on the prostitute. Uh, John is told that she is made desolate and naked, And they would devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. That's a pretty complete destruction. I don't know if they could do anything else. And I think there's a clear 
a good case for drawing in a comparison here. Again, this, this woman and the idea of Jezebel sort of get woven through this because there's a picture in the Old Testament of the Old Testament character Jezebel that is kind of sounds familiar with this. So just kind of take us back to that story in the Old Testament. Jezebel was a king of, was the wife of the king of Ahab of Israel and uh, who was a bitter enemy. Jezebel was a bitter enemy of Elijah the prophet. And after the death of Ahab, his sons struggled to kind of hold the kingdom together until an army commander named Jehu just basically led a coup and killed all the heirs of Ahab and took over leadership himself. In 2 Kings 9, we read that when Jehu came to Jezreel, which is where Jezebel and Ahab had their headquarters, Jezebel heard of it. And she realized she was probably in for the same fate as the rest of the heirs of her former husband. And so she says she painted her eyes and adorned her hair. She was going to look like a queen when she finally got killed, at least. That was the idea there. Uh, She looked out the window, and as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? Zimri was another king in the past that had executed or, or murdered his predecessor uh, so that she was kind of calling him a, a, a king murderer. Um, Jehu looked up at her and called out, who is on my side? And some servants responded and came to the window and, he, and Jehu commanded them, throw her down. So they threw her down and some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses and they trampled on her. Then he went in, Jehu went in and ate and drank and he said kind of as he'd been you know feasting there for a while see now to this cursed woman and bury her for she is a king's daughter but they when they went to bury her they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands when Jehu heard this he said This is the word of the Lord, which was spoken through his servant Elijah. In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. Pretty much the same picture we have of what happens to the Babylon in Revelation. No one can say, this was Babylon. It doesn't exist anymore. So back to Revelation, uh, what is specific, especially significant, I think, about this whole destruction picture that we see here is that John was told that God has put it into their hearts and minds to carry this out. This is quite a statement of the sovereignty of God that I think the kind of thing we need to grab onto, no matter what things look like in the world around us, because it tells us that the sovereign power of God even from Earth's perspective, it seems like everything is falling apart. You know, that these, we have all these things going against us, that God is still in charge. And he can take even those who oppose him violently and turn them in against themselves. And it says that uh, he did this in order that the words of God are fulfilled. That's the ultimate end of all things, is the fulfillment of the words of God. And so we see that happens no matter what. So indulging in some speculation, some idle speculation here, uh, on, on this, what this picture paints for us, apparently there is some sort of 
this relationship between the woman who represents the political and military, sometimes religious power, the relationship between the, the kings and the, the military and political power, uh, all these things, these relationships are, are stressed. They don't seem to get along very well. They're not, they're not, it's not peaceful. And actually history can kind of tell us that. That has usually been the case. It's not saying anything specific about the points of stress for the human actors that kind of set in for these things. Uh, but the power struggle does end up pitting the military political power of the kings against the cultural and economic power of the woman. So who's going to win in a war like that? Well, my money would be on the military power. But think about what that would do to the world. If all the military power in the world was combined together somehow, and that's a picture that it gives us there of the king's these ten horns turning to kings and allying with a beast. And that was all a light against this cultural, economic power of the world, and they fought it out to the end. Not much is going to be left. And I think that, in fact, the, that costly victory maybe could be an explanation for why the beast and his allies thought they could turn and stand against the lamb, go to war against the lamb, Stand against God Almighty. So the visions continue here. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Another angel came down from heaven having great authority. So I argued back in chapter 10, if anyone remembers that, that the mighty angel there was a vision of Jesus. Uh, we have several of those in Revelation, I believe, that uh, are angelic or in some, other, some form like that. We've seen visions, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the vision of the lamb, all these kind of different things. They still sort of the same person. They can also be found in the Old Testament. There's pre-incarnate visions of Jesus in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, and sometimes as fire, sometimes as a cloud. Um, and to kind of tease that out a little bit I think we have the same thing happening here the angel was one having great authority that's kind of the first thing we're going to focus on a similar claim was made regarding the authority given to the beast that came from the sea back in chapter 13 we read that and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority now, the angel here in chapter 18 possessed authority coming down from heaven. I think we have a contrast going on here between these two phrases, great authority, because it's the only places in the New Testament those two words are used together like that. We have a contrast between the heavenly power and the earthly power. It's a contrast, actually, between the beast, who is part of the counterfeit trinity, 
who mimics the Son, who's part of the Holy Trinity. We've talked about that before as well. We also see that this angel made the earth bright with his glory. Now, this is a phrase that's very close to one that's found in Ezekiel's visions of the return of the temple, of the glory, and of, to return to the temple, the glory of the Lord. In Ezekiel chapter 40, let's take a look at a couple things here. Ezekiel writes, and this happened in the 25th year of our captivity in the first month on the day, 10th day of the month in the 14th year after the city was taken, after Jerusalem was taken. Just, they're in, the, in Babylon and captive right now. On that day, the hand of the Lord came upon me and took me in a vision of God into the land of Israel, and he placed me upon an exceedingly high mountain, and upon it was something like the construction of a city opposite to the mountain. Now, this is the beginning of the end, the last chapters of Ezekiel. And chapters 40 through 48 are all a continuation of this same vision. And we're going to, if you, if we'll make a call attention to this a couple places, we're not going to try to do the whole thing. But those same chapters sound an awful lot like what John is going to experience in chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation. We'll see some parallels there. But when we get down three chapters later, in 43, after the temple has been built, reconstructed, he's, he's described it all in detail, the vision has. And then Ezekiel says, Then he led me to the gate, and facing the east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. In the Greek text of Ezekiel, and when you compare that to Revelation, and the Greek text is what the church would have used as its Bible in those days. It's even closer than the English is. In what it, so we have a connection here that's made. And if that's not enough, the fact that the vision says his glory actually argue for the same thing. Um, this angel with great authority, and the one back in chapter 10, I think, who came with uh, the mighty angel who came whose face was like the sun and legs like fire uh, this kind of luminous description every reference to glory in the book of Revelation the glory of a heavenly being is either to Christ or God that's the only time you see it happen finally the mighty angel called out with a mighty voice while slightly different wording was used here, I think we have something similar to what we see in chapter, Revelation chapter 5, verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals. Now, I mentioned when we talked about back in chapter 10, that I think in chapter 5 and 10 and here, we have a similar picture of vision of Jesus in his glory. Now, if you go back to chapter 5, just to flesh that out real quickly here, you have three things that are said in that context. You have this mighty angel asking who is worthy to open the scroll, and then you introduce to the line of the tribe of Judah. Okay, now you think, well, okay, here's a couple. These guys ought to be able to carry this out. A mighty angel, line of the tribe of Judah, and then we see the lamb, as if slain. So there's a contrast there. You've got three visions of Jesus all in one thing, but I think it's all the same. All the same. Now this mighty voice called out, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, 
which is followed by a description of the devastation of the city. Uh, there are some challenges to this verse that follows here that talks about this devastation in the manuscript evidence for the New Testament. Uh, there's some problems with when the last phrase there that is translated here, a haunt for every unclean, detestable beast. Uh, the issues don't really affect the meaning of it, and most modern English translations include the phrase, but you'll see it left out in a couple of them. Um, if you were to look at a literal translation of these phrases that describe the destruction, it would read like this. It says, And she became a dwelling place of demons, uh, and a haunt of every un spirit unclean, and a haunt of every bird unclean, and a haunt of every animal unclean, and having been hated. So who's the having been hated apply to? The woman or the, or the animal? You know, that's, the, the, that's the, one of the questions that you have in the translation here. Anyhow, we can, you can see this. I think that we've got, that's the other place where the word hated is used. We just saw that in the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. The difference between these two is the previous one was future tense, and this one's past tense. So I think we've got just a summary, really, that kind of repeats what we've already seen. The final part of the passage recalls previous statements. We're getting down to the end, so we're going back and picking up things again and again to remind us. So it's the most part repetitious, but it does have a very important piece of new information. So you kind of see this starting out. We go back to chapter 14 where we first saw this idea of fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. We got that repeated here. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Uh, the seven angels talk about the beginning of the chapter who have the seven bowls came and said, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitutes. This is the same thing. It's all the same thing happening across these three. All them made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. You got that repeated here in chapter 18. With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality in chapter 17. With the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth become drunk. You got along with the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her here. And then we have added the merchants of the earth. This is the first time we've seen these characters in this drama. Have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Now I think this is important because this is a place where we see, I think, most clearly in the text that the power that Babylon wields in this whole picture of things is primarily economic and cultural. This is how she does it. These are her, her people, the merchants here. And we're told that they have be grown rich from the power of, uh, of her. And what that is is the next is one Greek word that's translated luxurious living in the ESV. And here's some other options. Excessive luxuries, sensual behavior, sensuality, abundance of luxury, sensuality and excess, extravagant luxury, debauchery, if you don't have that in one of the translations you have, I'm not sure, you know, one more that may be there. Some of the older lexicons suggest the English word wanton. Now, that word means given over to self-indulgence, but it's not really commonly used in our modern language today so much. The Revised Standard Version 
had that wantonness, but when it came out the new revised standard, they changed it to luxury. So it kind of follows the rest of them here. Now, it's easy for us to shrug off this description. It's not applying to us. Luxurious living, wealth, rich. It must be talking about those who we consider wealthy, right? You know, those profligate Hollywood types, you know, and billionaires and all those kinds of guys. But the vision pictures the world order that has been the case as long as there's been a war on the saints, which we have argued began at the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. That we're already in the Great Tribulation, as chapter 7 talks about. So what it's describing here is the current battlefield, not something that's really distant from us. In the terms of church history, it's interesting that it's the covert, subtle challenges presented by Babylon that have caused far more problems with the church than the overt, violent persecution that you see and has lasted a whole lot longer. How are we to engage our enemy when facing a subtle and seductive threat as opposed to an overt one? That gets us to the next passage here. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her, since in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, I am mourning, I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Come out is one of two imperative or command verbs we're going to see in chapter 18. We'll get the next one next week. The command to come out comes from a voice from heaven. Now, as I mentioned before, whenever you see a voice from heaven or a voice from a cloud in the New Testament, it is always the voice of God, or more specifically, the voice of God the Father. The exhortation is not necessarily to withdraw from Babylon in the sense of having no part of an economic life of the world in which we have to live. What it tells us is to avoid participating in her sins. The church must take care not to compromise or to share the prevailing values of the economic and cultural world around us. It's the system of Babylon. And the command comes with a warning, lest you share in her plagues. Babylon will be judged and judged harshly. This we have already seen at the end of chapter 17. The voice from heaven declared that as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. And this was to be done in double portion. The last part of her words I shall never see, uh, are examples of a construction that represents the strongest statement you can make of something negating something 
in the Greek language. Uh, you could literally read it, never, never might I see. It's interesting, it doesn't happen, you don't see it much in, in the New Testament, this particular construction, but we're going to see it seven more times in chapter 18, and every one of them is going to argue against her claim. This is also reminiscent of an important passage to Revelation, which is Isaiah chapter 47, of Isaiah's picture of the fall of Babylon, the historic Babylon. Uh, it says, Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people, I profaned my heritage, I gave them into your hand, you showed them no mercy. On the aged you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. There's how God uses even negative things of the world. You, shall, you said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Now, therefore, hear this, you lovers of pleasure, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. I shall not sit as a widow or no loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment. In one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. We'll look at that a little bit again next week, the same uh, intertext. While we may not consider our conditions in this world to be luxurious living, uh, they are, by comparison, with the predominant standard of living in the first century, even of most of the wealthy in the first century, were still better off. Yet even the first century church at Laodicea could still be criticized for its attitude because you are saying, I am rich, I have become rich, I have needed nothing. And to that, Jesus replied, you do not know that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. As for Babylon, plagues, death, mourning, famine, burning with fire will come in a single day. Uh, this was not a literal period, as we've said before, but another metaphorical statement for a very short time of some kind. Along the same lines that we saw in chapter 17, that it, this all happened in one hour, and that we saw even in Isaiah, where he talks about in a moment in a day. The passage closes with, For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. So I think it's, uh, in terms of kind of trying to apply some of this, we have to ask some questions. How do we not participate in the sins of Babylon? Uh, they aren't going to be real obvious to us. That's the whole point of Babylon. To what do we think, to what degree do we think that God's blessing and approval of us are measured by Babylon standards? You know what those standards are? Wealth and health. Affluence and health. How do we avoid being entangled, entangled in the economic and cultural system that is characterized as holding a golden cup full of the abominations of the earth of idolatry how do we obey the imperative come out from her my people nothing has really changed for the church since this was written we have the same capacity to be seduced and intoxicated with the world in which we live our ability to resist 
correlates just like it did for the seven churches that the messages were sent to with our knowledge of the word of God and our engagement in the life of the church. Next week, we'll look at some of the ways in which the church is suited for this difficult task. But for now, consider what the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that was a close neighbor of Laodicea's. Those Colossians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We need to be aware that the reality of living in the kind of world we live in is that whatever in our thought and behavior is not Christ-like is necessarily Babylonian. There isn't any gray area. There's nothing in between. The New Testament never gives us that option. And so I think there's lots we can do to do, you know, to examine our own lives, examine how we live, how we carry out these things. Certainly this morning with a communion is a way to do that. But, uh, for right now, we're going to kind of put this on an individual level. Next week, I'm going to focus on a more church level on some of these things. But whatever in our thought and behavior is not Christ-like is playing for the other side, for the other team. So let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, how uncomfortable it makes us sometimes. We thank you for what you have done for us, and we see that throughout this as well. I pray that you'll strengthen us and make us sensitive to those things around us that uh, in the world in which we live, in which we have to live, and help us to be examples to do as the Colossians were exalted, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him.